Welcome to the Sermon Podcast from Church at the Well in Towson, Maryland. To learn more about Church at the Well, visit our website, thewellbaltimore.com. And now, here's today's sermon from our pastor, Dane Carraway. So um, we're continuing our series called The Bridge. You see it up there. Um, We've been going through Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. And he's been connecting with us what we understand from the Old Testament to what's played out in the narrative of Jesus. Um, th- this morning, we're going to go and look at one of the, at, at least part of, and I was telling this to Katie this morning, uh, I had big goals of, I'm going to do the whole Sermon on the Mount in one Sunday. And then reality set in and realized that's three chapters and the way that you preach, there will be no one here the next week because you would have talked them into a grave. It would have been horrible. Um, but... Um, so the, the Sermon on the Mount is covered in Matthew 5 through 7. And what, what I've, uh, where we're going to go this morning is at the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount. Real quick, though, I just want to kind of like paint the picture or kind of give you, you know, the perspective that we need to go in as we look at the, uh, the, the frame um, that we need to look at the Sermon on the Mount with. Um, in Matthew chapter 4, which is where we were last week, we learned about Jesus being tempted, this, like, this, this, the, at the very, like, preemptive, the, almost the training camp of Jesus as he started his ministry. And after him sending Satan away, it says that the angels came to minister to him. But then in verses 12 through 17, Matthew describes the start of Jesus' ministry. Here's what he says. And some of your Bibles, that's even, like, the title that's given to that section of verses. It really can be summed up in verse 17, though. This is what it says. It says, from that time... Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This this was the message of Jesus as he started his ministry. Like, if you were to kind of sum it up, like, I don't know, have you ever been in a Christian circle long enough where you can kind of, you know, heard somebody talk a a lot of times? They probably have one central message that no matter what, they're going to come back home to. The the, the pastor of our church. Jesus, and he, uh, you know, he um, stuck to his word, but he was a guy that was desperately passionate about prayer. Like, you are missing it if you are, uh, you know, if you're a believer and you don't have a relationship with Jesus through prayer. That was his thing. Like, no matter what sermon he would be talking about, you're going to get something about how important prayer was. The pastor that we had before him, Pastor Mays, he was dedicated to God's word. No matter what the message was about, you're going to be like, and you're not really going to understand this unless you're reading God's word. That was always what it came back to one way or another. For Jesus, as he preached, his main message was repent. It is time. The time's not later. It's now you got to repent. You, like you, you're, where you are and the way that you see your life is not where you need to be. You need to repent for the kingdom is at, is at hand. Um, Jesus' main message was that it was time to repent. So what, what that would hear for the listeners, and as you would see, and, and even like as we talked when we were in the book of John, when he would uh, interact with people and some of the folks that he would heal and, and the conversations he would had, the question naturally became, well, Am I, am I eligible? I mean, am I eligible to enter into your kingdom? Have I repented enough? Am, am, am I good enough to do this? Am, am I righteous enough to qualify for interest, for, for entrance? Remember, the only standard of righteousness that these folks would have seen were the Pharisees. 
They were the, the like for, for this culture, they were the picture of what everyone thought righteousness was. They walked with their noses high, and you've seen like it, it all play out in, on, on, um, in the Passion of Christ. And I haven't seen it, but the Chosen, I'm guessing, like you see these guys that they were the embodiment of what culturally righteousness looked like. And we have the examples of it too. Like, you know, we, we, if I was to ask you, like, give me a, a worldly example of a righteous person. And you'll probably have either a politician or a pastor. You have somebody or just somebody who just thinks that they're better than anybody, right? So th- this is what it looked like. Now for them, you got to remember these Pharisees, how did they become Pharisees? Well, they were intelligent. They were smart. They would have memorized a lot, if not all of the Old Testament. They had head knowledge. And because of their head knowledge, they were elite so therefore, they got to like wear the robes and, 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 and teach and do things that made them better than everybody else. Because of their own accomplishments, that was seen as the picture of righteousness, and everybody else lived inferiority to them. That was the picture of what righteousness was. So everybody, so as Jesus comes on the scene, and even in his interactions with folks, there was just natural just like progression of like, well, you're telling me to repent, but that can't simply be it. They can't, this is what righteousness looks like. I I, I didn't go to school. Think about the disciples, fishermen. I I, I, I took the test and, man, I just couldn't memorize like those guys could. I, 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 I possibly can't be eligible because that's what righteousness looks like. Would one who followed that standard, be acceptable in Messiah's kingdom. So here's Jesus with the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to start to read. And it's got to be understood in the context of his offer to the kingdom to Israel and the need for repentance to enter the kingdom. Jesus strips away this whole like class system and basically says, you don't need to be anything more than in relation to me. Like, it, that's it. The sermon didn't give a constitution for the kingdom, nor did it present the way of salvation. The Sermon on the Mount showed how a person who was in the right relationship with God should conduct their life. That's what we're going to read in and, and, and we're not going to go through the whole things in the next few weeks. Like we're going to do the Beatitudes this week and next week. And as we go through Mark and Luke, I'm going to come back and pick at some of those other ones. So don't worry, I'm, I'm going to get to salt and light. And I'm going to get to some of the other things that Jesus said that talks about the lifestyle of somebody who's in the kingdom of Jesus. I promise we'll get there. Before the end of the year, you're gonna, we're going to come back, all right? That's why there's four gospels. But, um, but, but in these next two weeks specifically, uh, I, I want us to see that Jesus did not just preach on what we need to do to get to heaven. That's not what he preached about. Rather, he taught on what the life of someone in right relationship with him looks like. But this passage must be understood in the light of his offer to, uh, to the, to the uh, messianic kingdom. The sermon applies to Jesus' followers today for it demonstrates the standard of righteousness God demands for his people. So that, that's a little bit about like the Sermon of the Mount as a whole. I wanted to, I want to focus on the opening statements uh, of Jesus first that we know as the Beatitudes. So let's start reading in, in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 1, it says, uh, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, um, real quick, I I just want to touch on this because this is a a very important uh, uh, thing. And it's something I learned in seminary when I first started to take my my preaching classes. Um, I I remember one of my first uh, classes in uh, seminary, it was asked to us, who did Jesus primarily preach to? Who was he talking to? And um, I think that we see a picture of this in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5. Makes no mistake about it. Jesus taught his followers. This is who he was teaching to. Um, You may have noticed, if you've been to our church since we've launched, I've never given an invitation. I've never, like, said, like, hey, if you want to accept Jesus, raise your hand. If you want to come down front, raise your hand. And by the way, I don't think that there's anything wrong or unbiblical about these things. One of the reasons why I haven't done that is because I think that I'm modeling Jesus' style of evangelism. What Jesus did here and what Jesus did often is that he is talking to his followers or he's talking to a specific person that he has caught their interest. That they have begun at least an interest in Jesus. They've come close to him and they've made an intention to listen to what he has to say. But Jesus being the master teacher that he is, always is speaking knowing that other people are listening. Parents know how to do this, Right? You know how to have a conversation with either your significant other or somebody else, knowing that your kid is in earshot, knowing that you can't say everything you want to say because of who's listening, or you're saying something specifically because you know somebody else is listening. Jesus here comes, and as this was custom when rabbis taught, was that they came, he came and sits down on mountainsides, and his disciples came to him. Now, Jesus knew that there was a crowd following as, as well, right? And Jesus begins to Talk to these guys who have already committed, the, like has already started the, the journey in following him. And says like, this is what someone who is committed to me looks like. This is what it looks like to, to, for our life that someone who's already committed to the kingdom. And then whether these people are, are like have committed to Jesus as well or whether they're still trying to figure it out, they get to listen to it. Man, so what does this look like in our churches or, or even in our, you know, in, our, um, you know, in our daily lives? I think that when we're in circles like this, circles, when we're in, in places like this, when we're in, in rooms like this, I, I have you know, thought through and, and we've like designed our Sundays so that somebody can come into our church on a Sunday and they can sit. I was going to say in the back, but I don't want to, you know, they can sit wherever they want. I don't care where they sit. They can come on a Sunday. And all they got to do, if they want to, is listen. We're not required. We're not one of those churches that make you like Fred plays the song and makes everybody stand up and we have to sing like the welcome song to you and everybody's pointing at you and we make everybody stand and give you a hug and, and, and do all the, these things. Like we're not one of those churches. There's nothing wrong with being one of those churches. But at least I want people to be able to come and see and come and listen and take that walk slowly towards Jesus. We're not going anywhere. Until Jesus calls me home, we're here. I think that, that what, what Jesus is doing is that he's allowing people to take a step. He's having people to come and realize and, and look at what it means before they commit to it. Have you ever 
Have you ever sold anything? I'm sorry. Yeah, have you ever sold anything? Have you ever like, you know, I make it even better. Have you ever sold a home before? So when you sell a house, you put up on the market or, or you like put up a sign outside and says that this is for sale. And what happens is a buyer will come and they will make an offer to buy whatever you have up for sale. They'll basically say like, I see that you have this for sale and I see what you're asking for. Here's my initial offer. I'm going to start the conversation with you with my offer. Yes, you've posted it. I want to make an offer based on what, you're, uh, based on, uh, what, you're, uh, what you have for sale. Now, most of the time, the initial offer comes at the beginning of the negotiations, and it's very upfront. Someone comes in and says, I want to start the conversation with telling you the benefit of entering into this deal with me. I believe this is the posture of Jesus with the Beatitudes. He begins his sermon teaching the disciples and other listeners, and, and he goes after the question, what does it look like to trust in Jesus? Like, 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 this is what it means. Blessed are. But like, like he, he's, he's pointing to the, to the idea of like, you know, uh, what, what blessed means here is the idea of being happy or fortunate. Um, he, he starts each statement with blessed are. He, um, he is pointing to the joy found in the life of the person who lives as a follower of Jesus. See, Jesus being the master teacher, he doesn't just point out the benefit of what a follower of Jesus experiences, but he also paints that as a sharp contrast to what the life of one of these religious leaders would have been. Like he, he points it to like, this is what somebody is, and this is something that they would never be interested in being. Like th- they would have nothing to do with being poor in spirit or being meek. Th- like this isn't it. Like, like let me... Flip your whole world upside down. Like, you've probably been living in a, in a reality that I could never be like them, so therefore I'm going to struggle with either entering the, the kingdom of God unless I give all my money to these guys or else I, I sacrifice continually. And Jesus is saying, no, like, you're missing it. This is, that's not what your life is going to look like. He's pointing to the joy found in the life of the person who lives as a follower of him. Here's our big idea this morning. Trusting in Jesus looks like Jesus and nothing else. Like a lot of times like people like want like the sermon that says, here are the 10 steps to, to, to looking like Jesus or following Jesus. Sure, fine. It's in your Bible. It's there. But it looks like that and nothing else. Like how often have we, you know, in our own pursuits, in our own lives, we want to say like, I am a Christian and then occupation. I am a Christian lawyer. I'm a Christian school teacher. I am a Christian athlete. I am a Christian this, right? We have to put that there. And I think that our pursuit, what Jesus is calling us to, is that we would be men and women, we would be people that would say, you know what? Like, that occupation, that's what I do. That's not who I am. That's what I do. That, like, that's how, the, like, that's how it, like, the, the relationship I have with Christ manifests itself. Because if, if, if there were no more school tomorrow, amen, <laughs> if there was no more school tomorrow, you would still be a believer. Your occupation would change, but you would, you would still be a follower of Jesus. I think like a lot of us, like maybe that's what we need to tie to, like how much is our, how much is our following of Jesus tied to what, how the way it plays out? Here's one that we all went through, and, and maybe the reason why some of you guys are here in 2020 
Did you stop being a follower of Jesus when you couldn't go to church? I mean, when we didn't have to go. Have you heard that like 40% of folks have not gone back to church since, you know, uh, um, that previously were there every single Sunday before? Like, it, it changed things. Like when you don't have to do these things, people are like, you know what? I really love my Sundays. I ain't got nothing going on. And do you know the kind of TV that's on Wednesday nights? I can get used to this. I, there is a... Um, there is a realness to, to us like having to convince ourselves that trusting in Jesus looks alike like Jesus and nothing else. Jesus starts the Beatitudes by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is not what was displayed by the Pharisees. They didn't live like this. They thought, I've got to get it all together before I come to God. Like the, the, their whole posture was, I have to display this sense of righteousness, this sense of better than everybody else. That's who I have to do. And some of us in here, we, we know what that looks like, like where it is a part of your job. It is a part of your daily routine to be like, I have to look and feel and, and, and present myself as somebody who has it all together. Like that's, that's part of my approach. That is, that is part of, who, of my humanity that, People got to look at me and say, that person is, is, is perfect. That's what righteousness looks like. I'm not saying you don't take care of yourself. I'm not saying that you don't, you know, like take care of your, your task and, 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 you know, you present yourself as, as the best example as you can. But is it the most important thing? Is that what's like, you're, like is it inherently what, you're, uh, what, you're, uh, what the righteousness of Christ looks like in your life? Because that's only going to be skin deep, but you could be dead inside. They looked and spoke as righteous men who had it all together. Paul tells us in Romans that none of us, including the Pharisees, are inherently righteous. Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 9 through 12 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Paul, talking about himself, putting himself in this situation and, and speaking to where folks in Rome that would have been like, so what's this we hear, Paul, about you going and, and sharing the gospel to Gentiles? Like, this should, if, there's, if this whole thing about Jesus and him being the Messiah, this is supposed to be just for us. It should be right here at home. This, like, they should have nothing to do with this. And, and what does Paul say? He says, no, not at all. This, this isn't just for us. And we're not any better off than the Gentiles are. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Yeah, nobody's got this together. Nobody's, nobody's exempt from this. We're, we're, we're all messed up. We learned last week that like, just like Jesus, we all deal with temptation. We all have this. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one goes after God, you know, just inherently. We, 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 can't, we don't do it. We're all going to, at some point in time, falter to our own desires. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It may be hard to hear, but, it, but, but this is what Paul is, is telling the folks. To be poor in spirit means to empty yourself. Before we can be filled with God's blessing, we must first be emptied. It's the idea that's saying that like, you know what? I, I've, I've done a lot of things. I may have had some accomplishments, but none of, them, none of them are helping me getting any closer to heaven. 
None of these are helping me get any closer towards Jesus. You know how this is, you know, like you could see a firsthand account of this. I just finished uh, reading the book of Ecclesiastes in my, um, in my daily devotions. If there was any, somebody who ever had like something to brag about their own accomplishments, it would have been Solomon, right? Like you realize to this day, they said there's like, you know, per era and per accomplishments that there's never been a king like Solomon. Like what, what rich would have been at his time compared to what it would have been now that it still far surpasses anyone who's ever lived. To this day, like atheists would say this. <laughs> and he gets to the end of his life and he's like, yep, did a lot of stuff, had a lot of wives, had a lot of land, had a, lot of, had a big old army. It's meaningless. It, it's meaningless. Apart from knowing God being in relationship with the Father, it's meaningless. Like, like, God blessed him with wisdom and he used it to build his own kingdom. Made a lot of mistakes on the way, but was wise enough at the end of his life to say, listen, before I leave this earth, I need to warn everybody that would come after me and that would be ambitious to the point to try to build their own kingdoms. You better get to the point of your life where you realize that everything that you built, that is what's clouding you from being. And, and you filled yourself to the point where you can't fit God in there. There's no room left. What Jesus is saying is that fortunate are those who realize that they're nothing without me. Fortunate are those that, the, that where their spirit is and what they value, what it was the most important thing to them. Like, that's what you like, what, what spirit, like what, like, what are you connected to? Like, what is like the center? What is your identity in? When we think about porn spirit, when we get to the point where we realize like my spirit is nothing without Christ. That's what it means to be porn spirit. Like, I'm just not as like, there's nothing else that's important to me. Oh, it's NBA playoff times, guys. It's very important to me. Takes up a lot of my time. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like the finals need me. Okay, like if I don't watch these games, like w- what's gonna happen? You know, will, 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 I, will I be able to talk on the phone with with Fred and Brian if if I don't watch the finals? Like, what is my identity if it's not in you know the NBA finals? It's just, it just can't be that. Because guess what? On Father's Day they're over, and what happens? And it may be something as silly as that, but it may be something as serious as your jobs. And like I said, like, we could get a new president in 2024, and they says, you know what? No more school. Everybody's homeschooled, and everything changes. It could be as something like, for, for us, as, for me and my wife as parents, it could be our kids. Like, my whole identity can't be in being a dad. As much as I love those kids, they drive me crazy. But as much as I love being like those kids, I, like, I just, that can't be the wholeness of who I am. Because guess what? Every single one of them, except for Camilla, she's, she's not allowed. They're all going to leave me. Y'all can laugh if you want to. She ain't going nowhere. I wish some little snot-nosed boy would come in my house. You know what I'm saying? That's right. Yeah, look, look, man, well, she ain't. Let's put it like that. <laughs> Next subject. Uh, um, there is, 
There is a, like, do you know what I'm saying? I have I beat that, like, hard enough? Like, that, like, I don't, it doesn't matter who we are, what we fix ourselves to. Like, like, we just can't. Like, we just can't hold on to anything else. We have to get to the point where we are emptied and realize that I, there's nothing left in my spirit besides Christ. That's when he steps in. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we realize that we have nothing without him, that's when we, we receive everything. That's when we receive the most important thing. Jesus wants, wants us all to get to the point where we say, I know I need God to please God. I know that I need God to please God. The poor in spirit are those who consciously depend on God, not on themselves. They are poor inwardly, having no ability in themselves to please God. That's, the, that's the, uh, the sense of it. Jesus was teaching that the kingdom of heaven is a gracious gift to those who sense their own poverty of spirit. That's what he was teaching. So he says the poor in spirit, and he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, is this just about when people die? Is that the only time that we mourn? Just when somebody like loses life or, 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 or when something really bad happens? I don't think so. The idea of mourn is to, to feel or express sorrow or grief in the sense of it that like that's what it is. Jesus is teaching the, the opposite of the world's teachings. What, in our, even in our culture, we just like, we know that if we're going to live our best lives, if we're going to experience happiness, that we got to cut all the things out of us that's going to be, that's going to make us sad. Um, me and my wife fight over the TV a lot because if I want to watch something, it's going to be somebody scoring a goal, a basket, a touchdown. Like that's, that's what I want to watch. Or I to get knocked out in a UFC fight. That, that's Dane television. Throw in some Boy Meets World or Ted Lasso and I'm happy. Um, my wife wants to watch, like, she'll scroll through Netflix and just hear, like, the darkest music possible and say, like, oh, my goodness, Dane, this is, like, this horrible story about this, uh, about this documentary of how horrible this guy was uh, who, uh, you know, uh, kidnapped all these children, but now all the children are now becoming doctors. It's going to touch on every single emotion in an hour and a half. Let's watch it. And I'm like, Anna. Not in like I am a I am a saved man and I want to go to church in the morning and I want to go to bed happy and have laughed. That's what I want to go to bed. You know what I'm saying? But we got to watch something dark or crazy or some drama about this love story and like you know it's just it's all just like it's just too much drama and there's too many emotions. I want to have two emotions. I want excitement because someone scored and I want I want to laugh. I don't need to be sad. I don't need to be scared. I don't need to be frightened. You know what I mean? But the the reason why we like we like those things is because like. You know, it, it, it connects with us. It, it, you know, it touches on things. When we have, when we have, um, um, uh, we live in a society that, you know, whether it's like it, it, it makes our, uh, it makes us feel things. At the end, we have to go back to the point of, am I happy? Is this making me feel good? Is this making me connect with the emotions that I want to feel at this certain period of time? Am I enjoying myself? And what Jesus is saying is that, listen. There's going to be a lot of things in this life that's going to make you feel a lot of things. But you're missing it unless you look at the sin in your life. Remember, Jesus' main message was about repentance, and you mourn it. Um, we're going through this, teaching my kids this. My kids will do something, and they'll run upstairs. We always know something went wrong. We hear a big yell. We hear the feet coming up the stairs. And somebody, they always go to mom. And they're like, mommy. Cole smacked me upside my head. And 
But like Cole, it's like, apologize to your sister or your brother, and he'll say sorry. And then 20 minutes later, we're having the same conversation over again. So something we're learning as parents is that you don't feel bad about this. You have not expressed any sorrow. You have not, you don't have any grief about these things. Like, like is the sin in your life, is the things that you've done wrong, has it bothered you? Let me ask you a question. We talked about the temptation of Jesus, right? We talked about like how we all go through temptation and things. If there's ever been temptation that you've been stuck in, whether it's been lying, whether it's been gossiping about people, whether it's been like, you know, even like looking at things you're not supposed to, stealing, whatever sin it could be, whatever yours is, if you've ever like found yourself in a pattern of it, like where you did it once and then you end up doing it twice and now you're doing it three times and now it's just a part of who you are, as unfortunate as it is, is part of the problem been that you've never got to a point where like, I don't feel bad about this. Like, I've never looked at this the same way that God does. Like, I've never stopped for a second and said, God hates this thing. And for me to, for me to continue to do it, man, like, like this, this, this hurts the Father. And I'm trying to force God to be, like, to dwell inside somebody that continues to do something that he hates. If you're somebody who was constantly, that is constantly like returning back to, to, to the, I'll use pornography, you're, you're constantly going back there. But the spirit of the living God desires to live in you and dwell in you. And you've accepted Christ. Like, think about the predicament that you're putting that person in. Like, you're having to be next to something that you just don't want to do. It's like asking somebody who's like, like severely allergic to smoke, to sit at a table with somebody who's smoking. Like God has nothing to do with this. And, and like, if it doesn't connect with us, if we don't ever get to the point where like, you know, this isn't like, like go home and feel bad about your sin message. But no, but this is what he's saying. Like he's saying like, listen, you got to get to the point where you see this the way that I see it. Because if I believe in life and I believe in salvation and redemption, there's got to be something that I've redeemed you from. And you got to hate it. See, the problem is, like, we're in a culture that celebrates it, and sometimes we got to change our mind about things that are hard to change our mind about it because we enjoy it. You know? Like, there's just some things that it's just just hard to just, like, to see God's way on it. But part of our maturity, part of our our love for him has to be that we have a desire to, to see things the way that he sees it. We should be able to look at the sin in our lives and to bring us to grief. We should be able to look at the sin in our lives and, and to bring us to grief. And if our sin doesn't bring us sorrow, then we can never receive the true joy of salvation. Do you believe that? Like, if we're not able to look at, like, man, I know God forgives, and I know that, like, this is something that, you know, he, you know, like, he doesn't like. But God, I just made a mistake. You know, that, that's probably one of the most dangerous, like, terminologies for us as believers. When we start returning to our sins as mistakes. Oh, I just, I just made a mistake. I just messed up. Just this once. I'm not, I'm not saying that God doesn't forgive that. 
He's a forgiving God. He, he is full of forgiveness. He can't wait to forgive. He can't wait. I, I believe that Jesus is waiting for you like at repentance. If the idea of repentance, like the, where the word really comes from, is if somebody is walking this way, what it means to repent is to literally to turn the opposite way. The picture that I, that I have in my mind when I think about this is, you know, like if repentance is someone turning the other way, I believe that the minute that we turn here, Jesus is standing at us face to face. Upon our decision to repent, Jesus is standing there ready to greet us and ready to forgive. Like upon like, we can't even get the word out. He's like, I forgive you. I, I've done the work. I've died on the cross for you. I was just waiting for you to, to figure it out, that, that this was better. I believe that, that if our sin doesn't, believe, doesn't bring us sorrow, we can never receive the true joy of salvation. This type of mourning leads to repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief produces death. Why don't we mourn for our sins? Well, probably some reason that the Pharisees didn't repent to Jesus. It is probably very hard to think so highly of yourself and admit flaws. When we put ourselves on a high enough pedestal, it's hard to stay up there if we, if we find our own faults. And this is when we, we call our sin mistakes, and everyone makes mistakes. We humanize the things. Yeah, we're human, but when did Jesus call us to be human? He called us to be followers of him. He said, and he promised that we would need him to do it. That's why he wants us to be poor in spirit. God calls them to sin. Sorry. God calls our sin, sin. He doesn't call them mistakes. He doesn't call us to sin. He calls the sin that we do sin, not mistakes. It's impossible to truly repent unless we look at the sin the same way that God does. When we repent and mourn for our sins, Christ comforts us. Man, like, I, like, I don't know if you've ever read through these sometimes and been like, you're looking for kind of almost like an action and reaction, like whatever the beatitude, the first part of it is, like there should be something that connects directly with it. And sometimes you're like, I don't see how that makes sense. I don't know about you, but one of the hardest things for me to do is when I know I've messed up and I know I haven't been living the way that I'm supposed to be, and I get on my knees and I pray to, before God and I'm like, I should know better. I, 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 I'm not being the dad I'm supposed to be. I'm not being the husband I'm supposed to be. I'm not being the pastor I'm supposed to be. I, I know better. God doesn't, like, send an angel down and be like, that's right. Like, like, like there's not, like, somebody, like, standing over top of me in that way. He says that. The God of the universe is like, yeah, you should have but I love you and I forgive you and I can, walk, I can walk with you through this. You ever wonder why David is still regarded as a man after God's own heart, after what he did? You know the story of David? David was this young boy who defeated a giant and did all these things and he wrote all these Psalms and stuff, but David messed up big time. David had an affair with this woman, had her husband killed during war to cover, cover this whole thing up, and after this, it comes to this point, probably got to the point where, you know, because of one of the priests and this guy came and, like, you know, spoke prophecy to him, he gets to the point of repentance. 
And I, I believe it's only because Daniel's grief and his true repentance before God that God restores David. Were there consequences to David's actions? You, yeah, big time. Look, at, look, his family was a mess. Mess. Kids were a mess. But God restored him and God forgave him. He still had to deal with the consequences of his actions. And by the way, like, like we will, we will, God will forgive us. He will restore us. We're still going to have to deal with the consequences of our sin. Sin always has, sin always has consequences. But God restored David, and he was able to experience that forgiveness of God. So he says, "Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted." Um, um, um. Then he says, "Blessed are the meek." For they shall inherit the earth. Jesus gives us, a, gives us another opposition to the world's teaching. The world uh, teaches us that if you want to inherit the, uh, the earth, get money, get power, get fame, be strong, be proud, put yourself, uh, put yourself forward. I'm important and deserve the best right now. I mean, like, can you really be like, can you talk about entrepreneurship in our country? Can you talk about, you know, like, you know, uh, what it means to be a go-getter, what it means to be assertive, what it means to be ambitious and not have at least some of this. Like, even, like, I talk about, like, you know, some of my folks in ministry, you know, like, I was talking to guys and they're like, Dane, how's it going? Great. Now, what's your church growth strategy for, uh, for, the, for the second uh, semester of the year? <laughs> I'm like, did you the same thing that we did the first half of the year? And trust God through? I, I'm like, I mean, like, there's, there's a sense that you have to have plans and you have to be thinking ahead. But man, like, where, where do we become these folks that are, you know, I, I got to be proud with my head to the sky and run over everybody else in my way to get there. Um, I mean, what does it mean to be meek? If being poor in spirit is us being humble before God, then the same way being meek is us being humble before others. Those who are meek are truly humble and gentle and have a proper appreciation of their position. Some people think that what it means to be meek is actually to be weak. The Pharisees probably saw this, saw it in this way. I mean, think about how they treated people. Like there was a def- like definitely like a distance between them and the people. I mean, think about it. Like, you know, we talked about this when we were going through the, the series in John, right? To where like there's this guy who people had known had been this, you know, uh, had, had been paralyzed. And he's walking with his mat down the street. And instead of being like, hey, man, a miracle has happened in your life. Something incredible has happened. Like you're, you're the same guy that, that this happened. That's not what they said, though, right? They were like, um, what are you doing carrying stuff on a Sunday? I mean, that, like, like, like we're, how, how distant are you, not just from the people, but from what God is doing in people's lives to do something like that? A truly meek person is spiritually strong in the Lord. They're not weak. Can I give you some quick, like, signs of meekness? A meek person is, is poor in spirit first. He gives his life and all that he has to God, and he keeps nothing for himself. A meek person does not have his own interest in mind. Um, uh, in Ephesians, Paul uh, talks about what God's will is for believers, and at the very end, he says, submitting to one another out of the reverence of Christ. Galatians 6, 9, he talks about how we should not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will all reap if we do not give up. And then um, uh, a meek person responds peacefully 
to being offended and hurt when another person wrongs him. I don't think this is better displayed to anybody but Jesus, right? Jesus, with all power and all authority, just allows people to treat him horribly for the greater good and for the greater mission. A meek person doesn't require anything about honor. A meek person is always willing to learn. And it's, you know, the second part of the verse says that only the meek will be left to inherit the new earth and the kingdom of heaven. Psalms 37, 10, 11 says, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and, the, and delight themselves in abundant peace. It's a promise for, 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 for the future for those who decide to be meek. Uh, Matthew uh, chapter 23, verse 12 says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is one of those things where we don't have to put ourselves on a pedestal. God exalts his people. Um, when, uh, um, when we think about the, the idea of what it, what it means to be meek, I, I just can't help but, you know, just think about how um, when, when we are uh, like faced with the decisions of, uh, of what happens in our culture and, and who we're building ourselves to be, I mean, I think a lot of times that, you know, we just have to stay the course. Like, it's God not growing you. It's God not working in you. It's God not, you know, just like cooking into a process. And, you know, think about the story of Mary and Martha. You heard about these two sisters, right? Jesus comes to visit them. And one is saying, like, I have to do everything that I can to make sure everything is perfect, perfect for Jesus as he gets here. And the other is saying, there's not a better place for me to be than at the feet of Jesus. And that's what I'm supposed to be. That's where, I, that, that's, where, that's where my attention should be. And I, don't, I, I think for us, you know, a, lot of, a lot of people in here are busy. You guys got a lot of going on. And you have a lot of things. You have jobs to do. You have responsibilities that God has given you to do. Can I just share something with you? There's nothing that you can do in your busyness that can earn you any closer position uh, uh, to, to Christ than what you could do in having a relationship with him. I think that's the idea of like being meek is always being willing to learn, being open-handed. I mean, for all, think about the disciples who he's primarily talking to. Fishermen, you know, lower class of society. Maybe Peter was maybe middle class or on his way to be. And these guys would be the pillars of the church. Oh, that didn't earn them anything until now when we talk about them every Sunday. But for them, all it led to them was that they would be persecuted. So kind of like as a whole for this, like, you know, and we're going to stop for today and I'll pick back up next week with, with continue with this. When we think about what it, what it truly looks like to trust Jesus, I think we could just kind of like, I hope this just takes the pressure off. And I think a lot of people, they will spend their whole lives thinking about, like, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? Like, am I making everybody else happy enough? If, if, if my family's taken care of enough, am I, am, I, am I doing the right things? Am I, like, making the right decisions? I think Jesus is saying, like, yeah, there's a lot of important decisions you got to make with your life. I mean, kids got to be raised. Bills got to be paid. You got to do all these things. But if the first thing is trusting Jesus... It starts with a trust in Jesus. 
I hope I didn't make that like too like Jedi mind tricky. You know what I'm saying? Like that was deep. I still have no clue what that means. No, I, I think that like if you and I, a lot of times like it starts with that idea of being poor in spirit. That when we take off all the notions, we take off like what are the, all the ideals of what we think it's supposed to be. And we ask ourselves the questions, <laughs> and maybe it's not too 90s for you, what would Jesus do? Better yet, what would Jesus call me to do in following him? That's what trusting Jesus is. When we're faced with the, te- when we're faced with the, with, the, uh, with the temptations and ideas of like, forget what Jesus would do. Culturally, this is what makes sense to do. Are you willing to stay the course? I'm going to end this with the same statement that I did with the start, our, our big idea for today. Trusting Jesus looks like Jesus and nothing else. And that's what it looks like. It doesn't look like your favorite pastor. It doesn't look like this pastor. I, I, yes, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And, and, but in the areas where even I fall, it looks like Jesus and nothing else. Hopefully, like me or anybody else that, that you would be led by, like looks so much like Jesus, you can't even attribute it to that person. Like, hopefully, like, I give a sermon so good one day, you're able to say, like, you'll never believe what my pastor said, and you quote a verse, <laughs> because it was nothing great that I said. Trusting Jesus looks like Jesus. As you grow and as, as the Spirit works within you, hopefully, like, you grow in an understanding of that, but essentially, for each and every one of us, what we wish to take from this and what we need to look for this week is, man, if I'm going to be someone who has a life and, and, a, and an approach to all my daily rhythms, all the things that I have to do with one who, who is a part of the kingdom, who is a follower of Jesus, that I can move from being one of the people that are just standing towards the bottom of the mountainside, just making sure I can hear what Jesus is saying, but I'm still trying to figure this out. I can see the disciples that are there listening to him, and maybe some other folks are a little bit closer. But I'm still trying to figure this out. Maybe you're there, and I'm just, I just want to tell you, like, Part of the reason why this is a, it's not a constitution. Jesus is saying, here are all the things that you got to do. I look at this more of, here's how you know you're on the right path. When you, when you begin to trust in Jesus, when you begin to follow him, and you're able to look back at this at, at the beginning of Matthew 5, and be like, you know what? Man, like, I, I have gotten to the point where I realize that I'm nothing without Christ. Oh, you're going in the right direction. When you're able to look at yourself and say, like, Man, like, I, I care a lot more about people <laughs> than I used to, and I really do care about their needs, and, and, and I want to learn more, and I, and I have an approach to people that I didn't always have. Yeah, you're going in the right direction. Ultimately, this is what it means to learn how to grow and follow Jesus, because trusting Jesus looks like Jesus. Would you pray with me? You just listened to a message from Dane Carraway, the pastor of Church at the Well in Towson, Maryland. To learn more about our church and to support what we're doing in the greater Baltimore area, visit our website, thewellbaltimore.com. Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Church at the Well. May God bless you.